Acknowledgements This audiobook began to take shape from a collection of blog postings for Psychology Today. In fact, it was writing in my Don't Delay blog that I discovered how much I enjoyed writing to communicate ideas outside of formal, scholarly journal articles. I discovered that instead of writing to earn in my publisher parish academy, I was writing to learn and learning to write in a whole new way. Given this beginning to the audiobook, I want to preface my acknowledgments by giving special thanks to Libby Ma, Deputy Editor of Psychology Today and Author, who invited me to be part of the Psychology Today bloggers in 2008 and who has nurtured my sense of self as a writer. As well, I want to thank Hera Estroff Morano, editor-at-large of Psychology Today and author, who, like Libby, has always been encouraging and supportive. They are part of a truly wonderful team of people. Writing is not a solitary activity, even though we may struggle with concepts and the words to express these ideas in our own dark night of the soul at times. Writing is a very social act, from the inception of ideas through to revising a final manuscript. So I have quite a few people I want to thank for helping me with my writing. Of course, as my father always told me, you can delegate the activity, but not the responsibility. You can share the praise, but not the blame. This means that any of the shortcomings in my writing are my own. The things that you like best about this audiobook are most probably due to the kind input of these others who deserve my words of appreciation. As a scholar, I have drawn on a wide body of research in my writing. Yet unlike my scholarly publications, I have not cited this work in an academic fashion. So I want to give credit to some key individuals who have helped develop ideas that I have distilled in this book. In terms of the procrastination research literature specifically, my colleagues Dr. Joseph Ferrari, DePaul University, Chicago, Clary Lay, retired professor, York University, Toronto, Henry Schoenberg, retired professor, University of Groningen, the Netherlands, and Fuchsia Sirwa, Bishop's University, Sherbrooke, Quebec, have provided the foundation of ideas about how best to understand procrastination. If I was not drawing on their work directly in my writing, I was speaking to some of my own research that was built on their work. I am grateful to have all of them as colleagues and friends. In addition to the procrastination research, I drew on numerous other studies that have helped me to understand the nature of self-regulation failure, how we can structure our intentions to more successfully meet our goals, as well as aspects of our personality, such as perfectionism, that can undermine our goal pursuit. Although it is not possible to list everyone, I do want to note the enormous contributions made by, respectively, Drs. Roy Baumeister and Diane Tice and their students at Florida State University, Brian Little, retired professor, Carleton University, Ottawa, Peter Galwitzer and his students at New York University, and Gordon Flett, York University, Toronto. I have learned a great deal from each of these scholars, and their work provided a framework for both understanding self-regulatory failure and strategies to more effectively exercise self-control to break non-conscious habits and patterns of behavior. It is easy to see how these esteemed and accomplished scholars 
have contributed to my own thinking and research. Not so obvious, but just as important, has been the contribution of my students to my research and writing. My research is driven by my students, as research at the graduate level in particular is a means to teaching and learning. I want to thank all of my students who have participated in procrastination research with me since 1995 as part of the Procrastination Research Group. And I particularly want to identify the important contributions made by Shannon Bennett, Kelly Binder, Alan Blunt, Matthew Dan, Mohsen Hagman, Eric Heward, Jennifer Lavoie, Adam McCaffrey, Rick Morin, Brian Salmon, Matthew Shanahan, Kyle Simpson, and Rachel Thibodeau. Each of these students has taken his or her own research past the thesis requirements and into the scholarly research more formally. Moving from research results to communicable ideas for others to read is a craft unto itself. I am grateful for the help of my wife, Beth, who, as a non-psychologist, is willing to ask me to clarify my ideas or my words. It takes courage for her to persist at times, I fear, because it is easy for me to become defensive about my writing. I know her thoughtful comments always makes my thinking and writing clearer. In addition, my friend Jeannie Bacon, who is willing to test the strength of friendship by providing her expertise to the editing of my book, has made an important difference in my writing. Jeannie, a writer with both graduate work in English and professional experience in technical writing, helped me to be more coherent and consistent with my prose. Where you still might find problems with my writing are places where I failed to heed her helpful advice. The comics in the written book, which provide a different perspective on the concepts discussed, as well as a little laughter at our all-too-human tendency to put it off until tomorrow, are due to the talents of my friend Paul Mason. I met Paul when he was a boy, and I was living one of my other lives as a canoe outfitter for Trailhead in Ottawa. Along with his father Bill and his sister Becky, Paul has developed an international reputation for canoeing and art. I was delighted when he agreed to collaborate with me on a comic series. When a particular comic makes you laugh, you can be sure it was Paul's creative insight that captured the concept so well. Each of the people I have identified, plus many others whom I hope I have not offended by omitting them in my words of thanks, have made readily apparent contributions to my research and writing. My final word of thanks are to those whose contributions are more obscure in terms of the writing of this audiobook, yet deeply important to me personally. They make life joyful, provide room for my writing, and bring balance to my life. My children, Laurel and Alex, along with my wonderful wife Beth, bring love and laughter to my life. I work hard not to procrastinate on the more mundane tasks in my day, simply to be sure that there is time for them. My dog team keeps me firmly grounded and in the great outdoors enough to keep me healthy and happy. Finally, my father, Walter Pitchell, is never far from my thoughts, and I draw on his wisdom, love, and support to build a life. Ironically, one of my dad's most often used expressions is, we'll see what happens, as he waits another day to act. 
I usually laugh and say to him, No wonder I study procrastination. Yet within his words is a great deal of wisdom. Sometimes delay may truly be wise and the best course of action. Knowing the difference between procrastination and other forms of delay is a very good place to start. You'll find some of the reasons why, beginning in chapter 1. Gildan Media presents Your Coach in a Box, affordable, life-changing audio programs. Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, a concise guide to strategies for positive change. Written and read by Timothy A. Pitchell. I have dedicated this book to sabbatical. Sabbatical is a wonderful part of the academic life. It is a tradition where on every seventh year, scholars are given time, uninterrupted by teaching and administrative duties, to read, research, and write. I give thanks for this gift of scholarship, and I dedicate my writing to those at my university and faculty association who preserve this important tradition. Introduction If you're listening to this, it's probably because you are bothered by procrastination. You may even be listening to this because you are procrastinating right now. You are avoiding some other task. I want to make the time you spend off-task right now worthwhile. That is the purpose of my writing. An hour from now, you will be prepared to act differently. You will be prepared to be more successful in your goal pursuit. Are you ready to get started? That is one of my most basic strategies. Just get started. In this audiobook, I explain why this works and summarize the research evidence for such a simple, practical strategy. About this audio program. This is a short audiobook, practical and no nonsense. Although as short as possible, each concept, topic, and issue presented has been carefully researched. I have been researching and writing about procrastination for nearly 20 years. You can learn about my research at procrastination.ca. This website provides access to my research group and academic publications, as well as my I Procrastinate podcast and Don't Delay blog for Psychology Today. I have had millions of downloads of my podcasts and blog entries. Like this audiobook, these resources are research-based but meant to be very accessible for people who do not normally read or listen to psychological research. The key difference between my blog or podcast and this audiobook is the organization of the ideas. The blog and podcast cover a wide variety of important topics, but you would have to spend days reading or listening to get it all. The value of this audiobook is that it is a digest of my research, and most important, this audiobook provides a concise summary of key strategies to reduce procrastination in your life. Why is this audiobook so short? Too often, we start an audiobook, listen to the first chapter or two, and never pick it up again, although we intend to finish it. Among procrastinators, this is a terrible risk. In fact, procrastination is defined by this intention-action gap. 
I do not want to contribute to this, so I have written a short audiobook. Most important, I have written a short audio program because I believe that less is more. It is quite possible for me to write hundreds of pages about this topic. I have in my blog and research, for example. My graduate students regularly write lengthy theses on the topic. However, when it comes to learning strategies for change, a few key ideas are what is required. Working with these ideas in your own life will make a difference. Your reading can make a difference in your life right now, if you want it to. If you want it to, this idea is very important to understand. No technique on its own will ever work without a firm commitment to a goal. If you are committed to change, I know that what you will learn here will make a difference. I have received emails from people from all walks of life, for example, lawyers, students, homemakers, consultants, medical researchers, and even other academics, and from all over the world that attest to the difference that these strategies are making in their lives. How the audiobook is organized. I have structured each chapter in a similar way so that the audiobook is easier and quicker to listen to. You know what to expect in each chapter. First, I begin each chapter with a key phrase that may become your mantra for change. A mantra is an often repeated expression or idea. It is commonly associated with meditation as the focus of your thoughts. I think the first sentence of every chapter can serve you best as a daily focus as you work toward change in your life. When you listen to a chapter that really speaks to you in terms of your own procrastination, memorize the opening mantra for change. Post it on your fridge or on your computer as a screensaver. In short, make it your own and reflect on it often. Second, I offer an example through a short story that highlights a common problem with procrastination. These stories are based on lived experiences shared with me by research participants as replies to my blog postings and podcasts, as well as through people I have met at invited talks, workshops, and even at social gatherings. These are people who tell me that they would be the perfect subject for my studies. I hope these stories help situate the issue in lived experience for you. Third, I summarize the key issues illustrated in the story. Here, I draw on research, but I do not quote dates, names, or other details as I do in my academic papers, blog, or podcasts. I write about the issue and research in simple terms to keep the concepts clear. When I do introduce a term from research, some psychological jargon, I explain what it means. Fourth, based on the research, I present strategies that you might use to facilitate change in your life. These strategies flesh out the mantra at the beginning of the chapter, linking the issue and what we know from research to things you can do to reduce your procrastination. These strategies are the practical things that you can do to solve the procrastination puzzle in your own life. As appropriate, I also provide a place for you to rephrase the key ideas in relation to your own life. This is where you make the concepts your own in the context of your own life. This is where you do your first bit of personal work and goal setting. Finally, in the written book, you would find at least one comic in each chapter. 
Paul Mason, an artist, creative genius, and all-around great guy, and I created this series of comics together. In the comics, we embrace the notion of carpe diem. The Latin expression carpe diem, which means literally seize the day, has been used for centuries with contrasting meanings. For example, it has been used to celebrate and defend procrastination with a focus on enjoying the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And it has also been used as an admonition, scolding ourselves to focus on the pressing task at hand with expressions such as, make hay while the sun shines. Our comic allows us to laugh at our propensity to put it off while lamenting the tragedy of our inability to seize the day and accomplish our goals. Laugh or cry, we hope you'll enjoy the situations we portray. Although the context for these comics is college and university life, I think you will find the themes applicable to other life domains. Okay, enough by way of introduction. Let's just get started. What is procrastination? Chapter 1. What is procrastination? Why does it matter? All procrastination is delay, but not all delay is procrastination. Maria, a working mother of three young children, reaches the end of her day with lots left to do. Again, she didn't get the laundry put away or her files sorted in her office. She beats herself up, calling herself a procrastinator, yet she's confused about how she'll ever be able to get it all done when so much happens each day that's out of her control. She plans carefully, but the kid's illness, changes at the daycare, and both her and her husband's travel for work always seem to necessitate change in her plans and delays on some tasks. Issue These examples in Maria's life should not be seen as procrastination. We all have to delay things. Delay is part of making priorities. Of course, a child's illness takes precedence over much of what we might plan that day. Other tasks need to be delayed to make time for doctor's appointments, home care, whatever is necessary. The key issue here is that it is not a voluntary delay in the strictest sense. Procrastination is the voluntary delay of an intended action, despite the knowledge that this delay may harm the individual in terms of the task performance or even just how the individual feels about the task or him or herself. Procrastination is a needless, voluntary delay. In Maria's case, the delay on putting away the laundry and filing were not truly voluntary. She was not needlessly taking on some alternative task to avoid the laundry or filing. She was optimizing her use of time to meet one of her most important life goals, to be the best mother she can. There are many types of delay in our lives. I believe we need to learn to appreciate this. Some delays are not only necessary, as with the example of Maria's task delay in favor of her children's health, they are wise. We might also decide to delay an action on a project because we need more information first. It is wise to put things off at times rather than to act impulsively or hastily. Delay is a necessary part of our lives. At any given moment, there are a number of things we could do. What will we choose to do? This choice is based partly on our earlier intentions, our plans for the day. But of course, 
our choice will also depend on the context of the moment. What is happening right now that has an effect on our choices? What is most important now? What is the wisest thing we can do given our goals, responsibilities, roles, and desires? Procrastination, in contrast to other forms of delay, is that voluntary and quite deliberate turning away from an intended action, even when we know we could act on our intention right now. There is nothing preventing us from acting in a timely manner except our own reluctance to act. This is the puzzling aspect of procrastination. Why are we reluctant to act? Why is it we become our own worst enemy? We undermine our own goal pursuit needlessly. Why? How can we solve this procrastination puzzle? To understand the procrastination puzzle, that voluntary but needless delay in our lives that undermines our goal pursuit, we need to understand this reluctance to act when it's in our best interest to act. We also need to have strategies to overcome this reluctance. The conscious use of strategies to overcome our reluctance to act is essential because procrastination for many people is a habit. That is, procrastination is a habitual response to tasks or situations. And like all habits, it's an internalized, non-conscious process. It is what we do without really thinking about it. In fact, cross-cultural research by Joseph Ferrari at DePaul University, Chicago, has demonstrated that for as much as 20% of the population, this procrastination habit is quite chronic and affects many parts of our lives. Habits are not easy to change. We need to make conscious effort with specific strategies for change to be successful. Throughout this audiobook, I argue that we need to make pre-decisions to act in a different way, counter to the habitual response. Based largely on the work of Peter Galwitzer, New York University, I emphasize many different ways that we can use pre-decisions to act when we intend to act, to reduce the effects of potential distractions, and to cope more effectively with setbacks and disappointments as we work toward changing our behavior. In the chapters that follow, I explain why we may be reluctant to act on our intentions. Then I offer strategies for change to help develop more effective self-regulation by breaking habitual ways of responding. The purpose of this introductory chapter is to emphasize that not all delay is procrastination and the importance of focusing on the needless delay that is undermining us. Strategies for Change My initial strategy for change is for you to begin to categorize in your own mind which delays in your life are procrastination. These are the delays that you want to do something about. Knowing this difference is a good place to start. As you begin to identify which delays are truly voluntary delays that undermine your performance and well-being, you may see a pattern emerge. These tasks, projects, or intended actions may have something in common. For example, you may find that these tasks, projects, or intended actions elicit common feelings. On a separate piece of paper, or on your computer, or simply as a thought experiment, list those tasks, project activities, or things in your life on which you tend to procrastinate. 
next to each. Jot down what emotions and thoughts come to mind when you think of each of these moments of procrastination. Do not overthink this. It could be, for example, that you're uncertain about what to do to complete a task. When you have finished your list, look for patterns in the emotions or thoughts involved. You will want to refer back to these while listening to some of the chapters that follow. Chapter 2 Is procrastination really a problem? What are the costs of procrastinating? Procrastination is failing to get on with life itself. I attended a conference a few summers ago titled Living Well and Dying Well, New Frontiers of Positive Psychology, Therapy, and Spiritual Care. During a discussion of coping with death and counseling individuals who are grieving, one of the psychologists in attendance noted two kinds of regrets that people express in their grief over the loss of a loved one, regrets of commission and omission. The second regret, the things we admitted doing while our loved one was alive, captured my interest. Regrets of omission are so often the result of procrastination. I asked this psychologist, what is the nature of these regrets of omission, adding, are these, one, things people really intended to do but never did, meaning procrastination, Two, generalized possibilities of what they could have done. Three, cultural scripts of what they think they should have done would have been nice to do. Four, internalized expectations of what the loved one might have wanted them to do. The psychologist replied that all four types were part of the regrets he had seen in his practice. So I pushed on a little further and asked which type of regret seemed most problematic. As I expected, given the guilt associated with procrastination, regret over the things that these grieving people really intended to do but did not was most problematic. The regrets of omission related to our procrastination were most troubling in the grieving process. Issue Everyone procrastinates. I believe this, and research has documented this in a number of different ways. In fact, I think that people who say that they have never procrastinated might also say that they have never told a lie or been rude to someone. It is possible, I guess, but unlikely. We certainly do not like to admit to these undesirable actions. So if everyone procrastinates, why is it a problem? The research evidence is clear. People who score high on self-report measures of procrastination also self-report lower achievement overall, more negative feelings, and even significantly more health problems. Let me discuss each of these briefly. The lower achievement is easy to explain. Although we can all remember instances when we procrastinated and did very well, we cherish these memories to make us feel better and to justify even more procrastination. On the whole, procrastination results in less time to do a thorough job. This usually means poorer work overall. A meta-analysis of the procrastination research conducted by Pierce Steele, University of Calgary, has shown that procrastination is certainly never helpful and usually harmful to our task performance. The fact that procrastination is associated with more negative emotions, or moods, is puzzling. If we are procrastinating, you would think we'd actually feel better because we're not doing the tasks we do not want to do 
in favor of the things we enjoy. At least, that is what you would think we are doing. The thing is, our research shows that even when we are procrastinating, and I mean when we are actually off-task, and researchers ask us questions then about our feelings, we do not report feeling happier necessarily. There is a mixture of feelings experienced, including guilt. So on the whole, procrastination does not make us feel that great, and this is particularly true in the long run. Finally, the new research by Fuchsia Sirwa, Bishop's University, Sherbrooke, Quebec, that demonstrates that procrastination actually compromises our health is very interesting. Procrastination seems to affect health in two ways. First, procrastination causes stress, which is not a good thing for our health for many reasons. For example, stress compromises our immune systems. Second, chronic procrastinators needlessly delay health behaviors, such as exercising, eating healthfully, and getting enough sleep. This affects our health negatively, particularly over time. Sure, not exercising today or not eating vegetables today is not going to harm us today, but you know how it goes. Tomorrow is the same situation. We rationalize one more day of delay, and before we know it, it has been years of neglected, that is, procrastinated, health behaviors. The results can be devastating, with increased risk for heart disease, diabetes, and other debilitating illnesses that can be prevented with more daily attention to simple but avoided health behaviors. The day-to-day delay on small but cumulatively important tasks affects us in other ways as well. A good example is retirement savings. It's easy to put off saving to another day, but this procrastination costs us in the long run. All of this is true about procrastination. It is seldom helpful, but we can certainly recall when it is, and it is usually harmful to our task performance, psychological well-being, and even our physical health. Although all of these outcomes are negative, this is not what might concern us most about the consequence of procrastination. Procrastination is a problem with not getting on with life itself. When we procrastinate on our goals, we are our own worst enemy. These are our goals, our tasks, and we are needlessly putting them off. Our goals are the things that make up a good portion of our lives. In fact, both philosophers and psychologists have proposed that happiness is found in the pursuit of our goals. It is not necessarily that we are accomplishing anything in particular, but that we are engaged in the pursuit of what we think is meaningful in our lives. When we procrastinate on our goals, we are basically putting off our lives. We are certainly wasting the time we could be using toward our goal pursuit. The thing is, the most finite, limited resource in our lives is time. We only have a finite amount of time to live. Why waste it? Why waste it running away from tasks that we want or need to do? Let's return for a moment to the story I told at the beginning of this chapter. As I listen to psychologists present their research papers and therapists talk about the grieving process, I left each session more convinced of the importance of dealing with procrastination as a symptom of an existential malaise a malaise that can only be addressed by our deep commitment to authoring the stories of our lives. To author our own lives, 
We have to be an active agent in our lives, not a passive participant making excuses for what we are not doing. When we learn to stop needless, voluntary delay in our lives, we live more fully. It is time to make a commitment to engaging in your life, achieving your goals, and enjoying the journey. Time is too precious to waste. Strategy for Change One of the most important preconditions for successful change is a deep commitment to that change. You really have to value that change. So I want to focus your attention on the cost of your procrastination to enhance your goal commitment. Take a moment now to think about the list of tasks that you came up with after listening to Chapter 1. Recall that these were the tasks, goals, projects on which you are procrastinating. You may want to add new ones, too, after listening to this chapter and thinking further about procrastination. Next to each of these tasks or goals, note how your procrastination has affected you in terms of such things as your happiness, stress, health, finances, relationships, and so on. You may even want to discuss this with a confidant or a significant other in your life who knows you well. In fact, you may be surprised by what they may have to say about the cost of procrastination in your life. Like tobacco smoke, there are second-hand effects of procrastination of which you may be unaware, including broken promises, unfulfilled obligations, and the added burden to others of picking up the pieces while you are busy with your last-minute efforts. Again. In short, it is important to recognize and acknowledge all of the costs associated with the self-regulation failure we commonly call procrastination. This knowledge can be helpful in maintaining your commitment to change. What I expect you will see in this list is how much you are paying for your procrastination. The reward of following through with your listening today is to learn how to eliminate these unnecessary costs in your life. Strengthening Goal Intentions It is one thing to know the cost of not acting. It is quite another to have a strong commitment to the goal itself. A strong goal intention, an intention for which you have a very strong commitment, is absolutely essential. As is commonly said, where there's a will, there's a way. To strengthen a goal intention, it's important to recognize the benefits of acting now, not just the costs of needless delay. Taking time to think about how your goals align with your values and larger, longer-term life goals or simply the short-term benefit of getting a necessary task done, can be an important step in strengthening goal intentions. In a list of the goals and projects that you've made, add notes about why this goal or task is important to get done, as well as the benefits of acting now as opposed to later. Finally, knowing something is different from realizing it, making it real in our lives. For example, we can understand that health habits, such as regular exercise or eating low-fat foods and less refined sugar, are good for us. However, we can fail to act on this knowledge until something makes this information real in our lives. A common example of this is the strengthening of goal intentions for health behaviors following the diagnosis of a serious illness, such as the cardiovascular disease. With the diagnosis, 
the knowledge of the link between behavior and health outcomes becomes real in our lives, not just knowledge about the world in general. The trouble is, it can be too late to act at this point, and waiting for an epiphany of this sort is not the most effective life strategy. It is very important to regularly examine our intentions as a starting point to reduce procrastination. To the extent that we can strengthen our goal intentions, we are much more likely to act in a timely manner. Chapter 3 What's the most important thing we need to know about procrastination? I won't give in to feel good. Feeling good now comes at a cost. Martin said that he would work on the report this morning. That was yesterday, and he felt good to put that awful task off until tomorrow. Now he is facing the task, and he feels awful. He is anxious and frustrated. He really dislikes this report. Feeling a whole range of negative emotions, he decides to work on some other less important stuff instead. His mood lifts as he pushes the report aside for another day. Issue As the work of Roy Baumeister and Diane Tice, Florida State University, has clearly shown, procrastination is a form of self-regulation failure. We fail to regulate our behavior to achieve our own goals. We make an intention to act, but we do not use the self-control necessary to act when intended. This is the voluntary nature of the delay that I stressed in the first chapter that characterizes procrastination. We may voluntarily delay our action because we are unable or unwilling to self-regulate our behavior to act now. There are many types of self-regulation problems, including problem gambling, overeating, reckless spending, and drinking too much. Procrastination is best understood as a problem like these, a problem with our self-regulation. Why do we fail to self-regulate? Although there are many factors that contribute to this, the most important thing to understand is that we give in to feel good. That is, we want to feel good now and will do whatever it takes for immediate mood repair, usually at the expense of long-term goals. When we give in to feel good, we give in to impulsive urges. These urges can take many forms. We might gamble, shop, or eat more than we need, ingest mood-altering substances, or procrastinate, all in an effort to avoid negative emotions. Of course, my focus is in how we use procrastination, needless task delay, to give in to feel good. When facing a task we intend to do, but do not want to, we feel a number of possible negative emotions. We may feel frustrated, angry, bored, resentful, depressed, anxious, or guilty. These emotions may be some of the emotions that you listed in your table at the end of listening to chapter 1. Generally, we call this task aversiveness. Aversive tasks are things that we all want to put off. They make us feel bad. We do not like doing these tasks. Who really wants to do an aversive task? No one. However, the task may be necessary for us to reach a desired goal. We may not want to do the task, but we need to do it. The key issue is that for chronic procrastinators, short-term mood repair takes precedence. Chronic procrastinators want to eliminate the negative mood or emotions now 
so they give in to feel good. They give in to the impulse to put off the task until another time. Now, not faced with the task, they feel better. If you find that you're chronically procrastinating, it may well be that you are running away from negative feelings by putting off your tasks. Of course, this is temporarily rewarding. The moment we put off the task until tomorrow, we feel relief from the negative emotions. And, as you may have learned in a basic psychology course, behaviors that are rewarded get repeated. We are reinforcing our procrastination, and it becomes a problem. Strategies for Change The issue of short-term mood repair in favor of long-term goal pursuit is a crucial one when it comes to addressing our procrastination. It is important to recognize that giving in to feel good is at the heart of self-regulation failure, and it's important to develop strategies for change. I want to begin with the most basic and perhaps least palatable strategy that I can think of in relation to giving in to feel good. That is, when faced with a task where our natural inclination is to say, I'll do this later, or I'll feel more like this tomorrow, we need to stop and recognize that we are saying this in order to avoid the negative emotions we are feeling right now. Knowledge is power in this regard. First and foremost, we need to recognize that this task makes us feel awful, and what we're trying to do is run away from these feelings. Of course, this takes a certain amount of emotional intelligence. This type of intelligence is not related to the size of our vocabulary or the ability to do arithmetic. Emotional intelligence is the ability to effectively identify and utilize emotions to guide behavior. Recent research has shown that lower emotional intelligence is related to more procrastination. But the good news is that we can increase our emotional intelligence. We can learn to more effectively perceive, understand, and regulate our emotions. This is very important in terms of more effective self-control. In any case, based on what I know about procrastination, it seems clear that most people who procrastinate are emotionally aware enough to recognize that some tasks make them feel awful and that they are procrastinating to escape these emotions. What may require further focus and strengthening is the ability to regulate emotions, or at least some commitment not to take the path of least resistance, that is, not to give in to feel good. What we really need to do is to come to terms with our negative feelings about a task. We need to find a way to cope with these negative feelings so that we can continue to pursue our intended goal. The question is, how? While I was writing this book, Ivy, a podcast listener, wrote to me to say that she had developed some of her own mantras related to the I Procrastinate podcasts. Here's what she developed on this topic. Don't give in to feel good. Step on up to what should. I like this type of mantra or slogan, as you know. It can help us focus more on changing our procrastination habit. Ivy's mantra could easily replace the one I offered at the beginning of this chapter. This tough strategy is immediately effective as a first step. We have to suck it up, as they say. Yes, we are feeling awful about the task at hand. We would rather run away, give in to feel good. However, the first step at the moment of procrastination is to stay put. 
If you turn away in an effort to make yourself feel better, it's over. Certainly, staying put in dealing with these initial negative emotions is not the whole solution, but it's an absolutely necessary first step. The key to success with this emotional experience is to be prepared. I will explain just why I'm urging you to prepare in a certain way later. For now, I just want you to think about the following as your first step in an anti-procrastination strategy. Think. If I feel negative emotions when I face a task at hand, then I will stay put and not stop, put off a task, or run away. This if-then format of an intention has been labeled an implementation intention by Peter Galwitzer of New York University. I will have more to say about implementation intentions in a later chapter. At the moment, the key thing is that you need to internalize this implementation intention in order to take a first step related to the negative emotions that are associated with procrastination. Although I think most of us have to recognize that we might very well have to just experience the first moments of these negative emotions, we do not simply have to take a tough guy approach and suck it up to succeed. There is another, gentler approach we can take. Essentially, it comes down to choosing the emotions on which we will focus. For example, although the dominant emotion at the moment may be fear, we may have fear. The key thing is that we do not have to be our fear. We can acknowledge this fear, but choose to continue to pursue our goals working from some other part of ourself. Parker Palmer, one of my favorite educational writers, speaks of this as working from some other part of our inner landscape. Our inner landscape, the psychology of self, is more than the fear we may be experiencing. It also includes our curiosity, our desire to succeed, and another very strong emotion, our interest. If we choose to acknowledge our fear, but find the courage to be, in spite of this fear, to work from another part of our inner landscape, we may more successfully stay put and stay on task. We will not give in to feel good. We will have made the first step toward beating procrastination. Of course, we are quite expert at finding reasons not to persist like this. In the face of negative emotions, we might even try to justify why we want to run away. We will not acknowledge our fear or frustration. We might simply think, I'll feel more like doing this tomorrow. We probably won't. I think we all know this deep down. This is part of the strangely puzzling nature of procrastination. We have become our own worst enemy, and we even know how to lie to ourselves. Emotionally, we are giving in to feel good while justifying this choice by thinking, I'll feel more like doing this tomorrow. No, we won't. In the next chapter, I explain why. Chapter 4. Why We Won't Feel Like It Tomorrow I Won't Feel More Like Doing It Tomorrow To introduce this chapter, I want to share a story I received from a reader of my Psychology Today blog. It clearly illustrates the problem of tomorrow. This reader said that the issue of feeling more like a tomorrow was reminiscent of a sign in a butcher shop window 
in her grandparents' village in Poland. Translated into English, the sign read, Today you pay, and tomorrow you get it for free. When the customers would come tomorrow for their free goods, the butcher would say, Read the sign. Today you pay, tomorrow it's free. As this reader noted, it's pretty much that way with procrastination. The tomorrow, in which I'll really feel like it, is always a day away. It never becomes today. Issue The story above captures the basic issue with procrastination. I'll do it tomorrow. In fact, the Latin roots of the word procrastination mean to put forward to tomorrow. Yet, as the butcher explained with his sign, that tomorrow never really comes. As with the butcher's sign, that implied that customers would get free goods tomorrow, our thinking plays a trick too. We think, I'll feel more like it tomorrow. What we need to understand, so as not to be tricked like the butcher's customers, is why this is not true. We will not feel more like it tomorrow. Research, particularly studies by Dan Gilbert, Harvard University, and Tim Wilson, University of Virginia, indicates that we are not very good forecasters. No, I don't mean weather forecasters. Meteorologists seem to be better at forecasting the weather, at least in the short term, than we are at forecasting our own mood in the future. Forecasting our future mood is known as affective forecasting. The main idea behind affective forecasting is that we have a bias when we predict future moods, affective states, in relation to positive or negative events. For example, a couple of years after winning a lottery, the winners were about as happy as they were before their win, despite the general affective forecast that they would be much happier if only they could win the lottery. This is also true of people who have suffered debilitating accidents. A few years after the accident, despite long-term effects such as paralysis, accident victims were about as happy as they were before this life-changing event, again, despite the general affective forecast that they would be much unhappier. Two concepts are used to explain these peculiar findings, focalism and presentism. Focalism is the tendency to underestimate the extent to which other events will influence our thoughts and feelings in the future. Presentism, as you might guess, addresses the fact that we put too much emphasis on the present in our predictions of the future. Taken together, this means that we focus on our current situation and how we feel now without enough consideration about the future situation, what might happen and how we might feel then or have in similar situations in the past. Here are some common experiences of this. If we go grocery shopping after a meal, we will generally underestimate how much we will eat in the week ahead and buy less. Addicts who have just ingested their drug of choice will underestimate how much they will crave the drug later. Irrationally, we think how we are feeling now is how we will feel later. The most astonishing thing about this is that it's true for simple things like current and future hunger states. How is this related to procrastination? We need to consider what this human bias and affective forecasting means to our understanding of procrastination. By this point, the argument may be apparent. In making an intention 
for future action, we focus on our current effective state with the mistaken assumption that our effective state at the point we expect to act on our intention will be the same as it is now. The real catch here is that when we intend a future action, our affective state is often particularly positive. Why? There are two reasons. First, because we are putting off action until the future, we get the reward that we discussed with giving in to feel good. We feel good now that the intention is for future action. At the very least, we feel relief that we are not on the hook to act now. Second, we are imagining ourselves engaged in some future action that we perceive will make us happy. This is pleasant in and of itself. Health behaviors are good examples here. If we intend to go for a run tomorrow, we feel good about ourselves for making such a proactive, health-related intention. Good for us. Our current affective state is positive, and we incorrectly forecast that our affective state tomorrow, at the intended time of the run, will be the same. There is nothing like a righteous intention now for action later to make us feel good. I'll run tomorrow. I'll do that assignment tomorrow. I'll write that report later. Happiness now, pay later, or not, as the case may be. Unless we can get better at mental time traveling, where we can set intentions with clearer knowledge about how we will feel about taking action in the future, we will continue to be predictably irrational with our procrastination. Strategies for Change We need a two-pronged approach to increase the likelihood that we will act on our intentions. One strategy is time travel. The other is to expect to be wrong and deal with it. Strategy number one, time travel. As numerous psychologists who study affective forecasting have advocated, we need to use mental images of the future more often and more accurately. We need to represent the future as though it were happening in the present. For example, a person who is procrastinating on saving for retirement might imagine, as vividly as possible, living on his or her potential retirement savings. To make a future image like this one more concrete and accurate, it may be important to set out some numbers for a budget and to take into account the reality of the need for and increasing expense of health care in old age. This time travel can help make our predictions of the future more accurate and motivate us to take more appropriate action now. Unfortunately, I'm not that confident that this approach will work for many people. First, it is possible that we will put off this planning task itself, a form of second-order procrastination. Second, even if we do this task, the initial emotional response, for example fear, will most likely wear off quickly, and more important, the fact that retirement is so far away may still result in us discounting its importance and delaying our savings further. Strategy number two, expect to be wrong and deal with it. This second strategy is more effective, but you may think that it is a hard-nosed approach. In this case, rather than trying to change what seems to be a deeply ingrained bias in human thinking, by improving our affective forecasts, I think we should simply learn to expect to be wrong and go from there. We do this every day with respect to weather forecasts, 
And most recently, we've been learning to do this with ridiculously inaccurate economic forecasts. Given our ability to cope with inaccurate meteorological and economic forecasts, I have confidence we can cope effectively with our poor affective forecasting. This strategy by necessity takes two forms or approaches. Approach number one. When we are tempted to procrastinate on a current intention or task, thinking that we'll feel more like it tomorrow, we need to stop and think, no, that's the problem with my forecasting. There is a good chance I won't feel more like it tomorrow. And it's important to add the following. My current motivational state does not need to match my intention in order to act. This is a common misperception about goal pursuit. We believe that we have to actually feel like it. We don't. And with many of the tasks in our lives, we won't feel like it. Ever. The thing is, our motivational state does not need to match the intention. We can do something even if we don't feel like it. Parents spend a lot of time explaining this to their children. Here is another example. Much as we might prefer a sunny day to go out for a run or a bike ride, we can put on rain gear and get outside. In fact, successful athletes do this every day. They are not fair-weather trainers. The weather does not have to match the activity. We can cope with what we get and still act as intended. Similarly, acknowledging that our motivational state is neither necessary nor sufficient to ensure action, we can simply remind ourselves of our personal goals, a form of self-affirmation, and just get started. Progress will fuel well-being and enhance goal attainment. I have more to say on this in Chapter 6. Approach number two. When we set an intention to act tomorrow, and tomorrow comes, expect that you probably will not feel overly enthused to get started. Given that our intention was made yesterday or much earlier, with the optimistic mood that comes with having a plan, we'll probably feel less happy than we expected with the reality of the task now at hand. Again, this is all part of our biased affective forecasting. Now, the thing to do is to remember that this is a transient mood, and think through all of the issues raised with approach number one, particularly how your motivational state does not need to match the task for you to get started right now. This is tough love with oneself, I suppose. Certainly, many of us have heard this advice as we were growing up. It was couched in the terms of maturity and the responsibilities of adulthood. These were often expressions of tough love, too. This was advice from adults in our lives who are trying to nurture fortitude and realism with respect to willpower. In sum, the strategy I'm advocating for dealing with our bias toward thinking will feel more like it tomorrow is knowing that this is a common problem with being human. We are not very good at predicting how we will feel in the future. We are overly optimistic, and our optimism comes crashing down when tomorrow comes. When our mood sours, we end up where I started in the last chapter, giving in to feel good. We procrastinate. The problem is pretty obvious, as is the solution. Let go of the misconception that our motivational state must match the task at hand. In fact, social psychologists have demonstrated that attitudes follow behaviors more than, or at least as much as, behaviors follow attitudes. When you start to act on your intention as intended, you will see your attitude and motivation change. 
This gets me a little bit ahead of my story, however. For now, let's keep the focus on the mantra for this chapter. I won't feel more like doing it tomorrow. Chapter 5 Excuses and Self-Deception How Our Thinking Contributes to Our Procrastination I Need to Be Aware of My Rationalizations Alan lamented his procrastination to anyone who would listen, but nothing seemed to change. His friends recognized him as the master of excuses, although Alan didn't acknowledge his own hidden talents here. He was truly the Teflon guy when it came to being accountable, even to himself. Nothing stuck to him. There is always an excuse for waiting another day, and there is always an excuse for being off task. It's not due for weeks. I can do that work in a few hours. I work better under pressure. Of course, another day always became another, and soon weeks or months passed without progress. Why couldn't Alan see how he was just rationalizing this needless delay? Issue. In addition to understanding, our basic impulse to give in to feel good, as discussed in Chapter 3, and not really feeling more like doing it tomorrow, as we discussed in Chapter 4, we need to consider some of the biases in our thinking. There are a number of very important issues to consider, including the human tendency to 1. Discount future rewards in relation to short-term rewards. 2. Underestimate the time things will take and overestimate how much we can do. 3. Prefer tomorrow over today. 4. Self-handicap to protect self-esteem. 5. Think irrationally about the task at hand and our ability to accomplish the task. And 6. Manufacture our own happiness by changing our thinking to be consistent with our behavior. Books have been written about each of these topics, but true to the digest nature of this audio program and the promise to provide you with what you need now, I have summarized each of these problems in the sections that follow. Of course, this is followed by strategies for change. Discounting future rewards over short-term rewards. Future rewards, particularly those in the more distant future, seem smaller in size. It's as if we're looking at a picture of a distant mountain and assuming that it's actually small. We do not seem to have perspective for size when time is involved. This is the notion of discounting future rewards, also known as temporal discounting. The problem is that future rewards seem less attractive to us than immediately available ones. I guess this should not surprise us too much. From an evolutionary perspective, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Our brains seem programmed to prefer immediate rewards. This Stone Age brain is not so adaptive in our modern world, where we need to meet distant deadlines by doing things today. The Planning Fallacy It is also human nature to be overly optimistic. We assume we can get more done in less time than is reasonable, and we assume tasks will take less time than they usually do. This is at the heart of the issue. We are not really thinking about how long things usually take based on past experience. We focus on the singular event we are facing without taking into account distributive information about experience or similar events. What results from this optimistic bias is poor planning. 
self-handicapping to protect self. To self-handicap is to provide an excuse for oneself. For example, if you were to wear weighted shoes and have a running race with a friend, your ability or competence as a runner would never come into question. If you lose the race, it is the fault of the handicap, the heavy shoes. If you win the race, however, that is extraordinarily meritorious. It is win-win for the individual's sense of self. Certainly, self-esteem is never threatened. A similar situation can arise with procrastination. To the extent that we delay work on a task to the last moment, we can be creating another form of self-handicapping. As with the running race, a task done at the last minute can be excused if not done well because it was done in such a short amount of time. And, of course, if the task is done very well, it looks exceptionally good for the individual. This implies that the needless delay of a task that we defined as procrastination may in fact fill a need. It can protect self-esteem, and experimental research by Joseph Ferrari, DePaul University, indicates that chronic procrastinators in particular prefer not to have feedback about self if they have the choice. Of course, delay of this sort has begged the question of whether this is truly procrastination at all, because it can be seen as a strategic use of delay. But it is worth including here just to acknowledge that we can end up delaying our tasks for reasons that may not at first seem apparent. Preferring tomorrow over today. Here is an example of a relation that we all understand. If B is greater than A, and C is greater than B, then we can assume that C is also greater than A. This is known as a transitive relation. What about this example? Imagine a task is due on Friday. It is now Monday morning. It is preferable to work on this task Tuesday as opposed to Monday. In other words, the preference for Tuesday is greater than the preference for Monday. Tuesday arrives. Ah, it's preferable to work on this on Wednesday as opposed to Tuesday. Wednesday arrives. Again, it's preferable to work on this Thursday instead of Wednesday. So far, so good. These are transitive relations. Then Thursday arrives. Oops, we think it's now preferable that we had begun on Monday. This is known as an intransitive preference. Chrysula Andrew, a philosopher at the University of Utah, has argued that when it comes to procrastination, this is a common problem with our thinking. Certainly many health behaviors and retirement saving plans suffer from this problem with our reasoning. It comes to a point when tomorrow is not only less preferred, but then an earlier date is actually the preferred date and is now too late to act. Many of us know this relation from experience. Studies from our research group also bear this out. We get a reversal of our preferences that makes for an intransitive preference structure. The problem is that the intransitive nature of this preference structure works against us in the long run. Tomorrow is not as preferable as we once thought. Our Irrational Thoughts We often believe things to be true that are not. We do not challenge these beliefs with any reality testing, so they persist. For example, we might believe that we cannot make any mistakes, or that we have to be able to answer any and every question after a presentation. We might believe we need to be perfect. We might think that our whole self-worth is dependent upon our career success. All of these are examples of irrational thoughts 
and they are common and problematic. They can lead us to experience very negative emotions, and they can provide an excuse for not trying. For example, if we are fearful that we cannot do a task perfectly, and that our self-worth depends on this perfect performance, then we may avoid the task to protect our self-esteem. We procrastinate. Manufacturing our own happiness and resolving internal conflict. When our actions and beliefs, or even two beliefs, are in conflict, they are dissonant. Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. Dissonance is uncomfortable. We want to alleviate this negative state. When we intend to act, when we have a goal towards which we have an intention to act, and we do not act, voluntarily and quite irrationally choosing to delay action, despite knowing this may affect us negatively, we experience dissonance. This dissonance is one of the costs of procrastination. Here are a few typical reactions that researchers have cataloged as responses to dissonance and ways that we reduce this dissonance. 1. Distraction With distraction, we divert our attention away from dissonant cognitions and avoid the negative affective state caused by dissonance. 2. Forgetting Forgetting can be in two forms, passive and active. Passive is often the case with unimportant thoughts, while we may have to actively suppress important cognitions that are causing dissonance. 3. Trivialization Trivialization involves changing beliefs to reduce the importance of the dissonance-creating thoughts or beliefs. 4. Self-affirmation Self-affirmation creates a focus on our core values and other qualities that reasserts our sense of self and integrity despite the dissonance. 5. Denial of Responsibility Denial of responsibility allows us to distance ourselves as a causal agent in the dissonance. 6. Adding consonant cognitions Adding consonant cognition is often done by seeking out new information that supports our position. For example, this isn't procrastination, or I need more information before I can do anything on this project. 7. Making downward counterfactuals Making downward counterfactuals involves saying things like, or thinking things like, it could have been worse, so we don't learn anything. We just feel better in the short term. 8. Changing behavior Changing behavior to better align with our beliefs and our values. This means that we would act instead of procrastinating, although changing one's behavior requires effort and is often not the most convenient way to reduce dissonance. We are quite expert at employing these strategies to keep buoyant day to day. We manufacture our own happiness. It is part of our coping mechanisms. That said, not all coping mechanisms are adaptive. Quite consistently, research has demonstrated that techniques like distraction, forgetting, trivialization, and denial of responsibility are emotion-focused strategies that are not nearly as effective in the long term as planful problem-solving strategies. Yes, we have to take care of our emotions, but this cannot be where the coping stops. If it is, that is just another instance of giving in to feel good, and we will pay in the long run if this is our dominant short-term strategy.
the myth of the arousal procrastinator. We often hear this, I work better under pressure. This thinking reflects a sensation seeker of sorts, someone who thrives on pressure. The thing is, our research has shown that this is a myth, at least for the majority of people. Sensation seeking is not related to procrastination, and time pressure typically results in more errors. Although many people use the excuse that they work better under pressure to explain their needless task delay, it clearly falls into the category above as an example of a rationalization for the dissonance we feel when we fail to act when intended. Perhaps a more accurate way to rephrase this oft-heard expression is that we only work under pressure. Why? Most probably because of the mistaken belief presented in Chapter 4 that our motivational state must match the task at hand. When we do not feel motivated to work on a task, we put it off until finally the external time pressure to do the task motivates action typically so late that a poor overall performance is the result. Strategies for Change I have briefly summarized a number of important biases in our thinking that can get us in trouble. On the one hand, we tend to be overly optimistic about the future and minimize the importance of more distant goals. On the other hand, when it finally comes down to doing something, we prefer tomorrow over today and make excuses about not working to make ourselves feel better. Given these psychological processes, change here is not a simple thing, but it is possible. Knowledge is power. Recognizing that it is human nature to have these biases, and more important, identifying specifically what we tend to do can be the beginning of change. For example, if we typically say something like, ah, it's not that important, trivialization of the goal, or there's lots of time yet, so I prefer to do it tomorrow, planning fallacy and intransitive preferences, we can learn to make these flags or signals for change. By flag or signal, I mean that as soon as we say something like, there's lots of time, I can do this later, it acts as a trigger or stimulus for a new response. Remember the earlier example of this as an implementation intention? If we say, ah, it's not that important, then we stop and remind ourselves that this is a form of self-deception, a bias in our thinking, and we just get started on the task instead. This form of implementation intention puts a cue in the situation, even in our thinking, to help us break a habit. The thought becomes the stimulus for a different response. We break our habitual way of responding. We begin to break that pernicious procrastination habit. The takeaway for this chapter, in terms of what you might do now, is to make a list of the things that you commonly say or do to justify your procrastination. You may need to compile this list over the next few days or weeks. The key thing is to learn to recognize how you are reasoning and rationalizing the voluntary, unnecessary delays in your life. Each of these statements can become your own flags to signal a new response. If these are your typical rationalizations or excuses for needless task delay, what will your new response be? In the next chapter, you will see that I think the important step is just get started. So my standard implementation intention is, if I say something to myself like, oh, I'll feel more like doing this tomorrow, I will catch myself in this self-deception and add, then I'll just get started on the task instead.
It works. You'd be surprised. In the next chapter, I explain why.